Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. A couple years ago, I covered the plant where we get black pepper in my first Spice Trees episode. Ignoring the fact that this plant was a vine and not a tree, I explained how it provides us with not just black, but also white and green peppercorns. That being said, you may or may not be familiar with a fourth color for this spice, pink peppercorns. Pink peppercorns come from a completely unrelated plant species called the Peruvian pepper tree. The biology of this tree can help explain why this seasoning shares a name with the more well-known pepper, as well as what makes it distinct. But the pepper tree will also shed some light on the party lifestyle of pre-Incan empires, the culture of early California missions, and a food fad from the 80s that failed spectacularly. to be made clear right off the bat is that pink peppercorns are oftentimes not considered quote-unquote true pepper. The reason for this comes down to botany. Black, white, and green peppercorns are the fruits of the plant scientifically known as Piper nigra. The differences in color are due to variations in the ripeness of the fruit that is dried and then ground into the powder that we are familiar with as seasoning. Piper nigra is a member of the pepper family Piperaceae, which is somewhat related to magnolias. Pink pepper comes from a plant in the cashew family, Anacardiaceae. The cashew family is, of course, home to cashews, as well as pistachios, mangoes, and poison ivy. Most plants in this family present some aspect of toxicity to humans, a detail that we'll see impacting pink pepper's culinary popularity a little later. The Peruvian pepper tree specifically is a tree species known scientifically as Shinus moye. That species name moye comes from the name indigenous peoples used for either the tree or the peppercorn itself. It comes from the Quechuan language family, which is the linguistic group that Incan is a part of. As the name Peruvian and the Inca language suggest, this plant grows most heavily in the country of Peru, with its range extending to other arid regions along the Andes Mountains. The overall genus, Shinus, is home to around 30 species that can be found growing across the South American continent. In regards to pink peppercorn production, it's really just our Peruvian pepper tree and one other pepper tree found in Brazil that this product comes from. Shinus moye is a medium-sized tree that typically reaches heights of 25 to 50 feet or 8 to 15 meters. The bark has a distinctive texture, its exterior being rough, ropey, and prone to peeling. The tree's canopy is quite wide, often matching the height with its breadth, which makes it a wonderful shade tree. While the branches spread outward, the twigs and leaves tend to droop downwards, giving the pepper tree a rather willowy appearance. These leaves are compound, meaning that instead of one leaf blade protruding from the leaf stalk, there are instead numerous smaller leaflets. These leaflets are typically shaped like feathers, aiding even more to a graceful appearance for the tree. Peruvian pepper tree flowers are small and light yellow, born in dense clusters that droop down with the leaves. 
When pollinated, those clusters will instead bear the fruits, which are small, pinkish-red berries that encase a single black seed. It is this fruit that becomes the pink peppercorn, once it is dried and ground up. But we'll get into how that process works a little later. Because as it turns out, there are a whole host of uses for this little pink fruit and the tree that produces it. In the modern day, the South American indigenous civilization that we are most familiar with is the Incan Empire. The Inca civilization is considered to be the largest empire of pre-Columbian America, spanning from modern-day Ecuador to Chile and Argentina at its height. It lasted from around 1400 to 1533 CE, but our earliest understanding of human interaction with the Peruvian pepper tree comes centuries before that. From around 500 to 1100 CE, Western Peru was home to the Wari people. The Wari Empire, though not as expansive as the Incan, is known to have impacted an area of around 800 miles along the Andes mountain range. We know this from archaeological excavations of human-made structures telling us who lived where and at what time. And one of the most interesting archaeological sites connected with this civilization is a massive citadel built on top of a mesa called Cerro Baul. I call Cerro Baul a citadel, but the primary purpose of this structure was to brew a corn-based beer called chicha. It was a mountaintop brewery. All throughout this site, scientists found remains of clay pots coated with various plant-based residues that tell us what it is their thousand-year-old beer was made of. And as it turns out, one of the most common flavoring agents or brewing ingredients was the pink peppercorn, what they called moye. All the clay pots in this brewery were destroyed, pieces scattered across the site. This is not because of the destructive forces of time, though, Apparently, the Wari people, when they decided to abandon this site for whatever reason, had one last massive party during which they absolutely wrecked the place. They made a huge brewery on top of a mountain and later had a huge party and destroyed it. I want to learn more about the Wari. Some scientists weren't satisfied with just learning about this pink peppercorn beer, though. They wanted to try it for themselves, and not just by licking the inside of these pots. Based on the composition of materials that made up this residue, a recipe was developed that is thought to resemble a Wari-made beer, called chicha de moye. They didn't just copy the recipe either, they made a batch in clay pots with traditional brewing methods, including boiling the concoction over a fire made of adobe bricks, local wood, and llama dung. When the product was finished, the whole process taking around a month, the chemical residue was analyzed alongside the ancient pots from Cerro Baul, and they matched up pretty well. In the modern sense, though, this drink is not a true beer. But there is a brewery in Chicago that worked with these scientists to make a modern version of it using the peppercorns, the moye berries, and corn, but also hops and barley. And now it sounds like I need to visit Chicago. 
Beer was not the only use for the Peruvian pepper tree, and many indigenous uses weren't even derived from the fruit. Cooking the bark and leaves yields a chemical that was a very important source of yellow dye for various South American cultures. The wood is also said to produce a resin that was used as an embalming liquid to preserve the bodies of Inca kings, much in a way reminiscent of Egyptian pharaohs. The whole tree is rich in oils, which have historically been extracted and used in a number of medicinal applications to help treat headaches and toothaches, sore throats, rheumatism and inflammation, and more. In a more general sense, the wood of the pepper tree is high quality and durable, something noted by Spanish explorers in the 16th century. Most notably, this tree's wood was regarded as choice for making saddles, a trend that continued as the Spanish traveled farther north into Mexico and California. Missionaries in this region didn't just take the wood with them, they brought the tree itself, planting more Peruvian pepper trees wherever they went. They became an especially popular feature in Spanish missions, Catholic communities set up with the purpose of Christianizing and assimilating the nearby native populations into European culture. The Peruvian pepper tree became an iconic fixture of these communities, with some arguing that they were as recognizably associated with the mission as the sandals on the Padres' feet. The tree's history with the missions helps us to understand how old they can grow to be. There is a pepper tree planted at Mission San Luis Rey in Oceanside, California that dates back to 1830, making it nearly 200 years old. This is the oldest known Peruvian pepper tree, and allegedly it was the very first one planted in the state of California. Extending beyond the Spanish missions, the Peruvian pepper tree is now a common feature across Southern California, thanks to its ability to thrive in semi-arid conditions. Over time, it has become an iconic street tree because of the drooping, pendulous compound leaves I described earlier. However, many have come to see this tree as a nuisance due to a few specific features. For one thing, this species is known to form root suckers, meaning that the roots that spread laterally are prone to sending up their own new stems. This is a terrible quality for a street tree to have because it breaks up sidewalks and other cement infrastructure. Additionally, the pink berries growing in multitudes subsequently fall and litter large areas around where the tree is growing. Although, some self-proclaimed urban foragers will argue that this is free food that is produced in abundance on our sidewalks and is just there for the taking. And in the modern day, the pink peppercorn is most commonly recognized as food, or at least something with which to season your food. Should you want to walk the streets of LA and pick these berries to make your own home seasoning, here's what you do. Take a bunch of freshly picked fruits and set them out in a bowl to dry. You don't want to dry them out in the sun because the sunlight will bleach the skin and turn that lovely pink color to white. And the fact that the pink peppercorns are pink is kind of part of the point. When the berry is dried and hard, it will break apart into flaky pieces. Apparently, this papery skin tends to get stuck in traditional pepper grinders, so it's recommended to hand grind the peppercorns with a mortar and pestle and store it as a pre-ground seasoning. The seasoning you are left with is kind of spicy like black pepper, but also has a fruity sweetness. You can season your food directly with it, but I've also seen it made into syrups. Most often, I see pink peppercorn used in some sort of seasoning blend. 
Right now in my kitchen, I have a Szechuan pepper blend composed of Szechuan pepper, which is another pepper-like berry from the Xanthoxylum genus, as well as pink, green, and black peppercorns, coriander seed, and salt. It's pretty good, but there's a lot going on there. Many will argue that the pink peppercorn doesn't have a strong enough flavor to be detected alongside black pepper, and I really can't disagree with that. But as you can see, multiple international cultures have begun adapting the pink peppercorn into the flavor spectrum of their various cuisines. The most predominant example in recent history being the French. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, French cuisine experienced a complete overhaul, transitioning away from rich, sauced plates of food to dishes focused on shorter cooking times with flavors angling towards fresh and light. And in 1980, this French Nouvelle Cuisine movement pushed forward its newest poster child, the pink peppercorn, a seasoning that brought spice and fruitiness in tandem with a bright color vital to the cooking style's focus on elegant presentation. This was, for all intents and purposes, the hot new food fad of the day, much in the same way that things like quinoa and kale and avocado toast have consumed the trendy food spotlight for the past decade. Although, come to think of it, I'm willing to bet those culinary fashion pieces are already out of date. I'm terrible at keeping up with trends, so let me look up real quick what's in these days. Apparently, canned fish is popular right now. And butterboards, whatever that is. I heard on the radio the other day that the elderberry crop was seeing a massive upswing in economic success, so I'm sure those fruits are in the mix somehow, too. Anyway, pink pepper was that stuff you put on everything in the international hip food world of the 1980s. That is, until it started making people sick. The Food and Drug Administration in America wasted no time in getting the spice off their grocery store shelves, banning it from the U.S. in 1982 and declaring it toxic. French exporters fought against it as much as they could, pointing out that another shyness species, the Brazilian pepper tree, was really to blame because it produced an inferior product that was being marketed as the same thing. They also produced scientific evidence presenting that the perceived toxicity of the peppercorn varied based on how and where the trees were grown, and ultimately, any sort of sickness was caused by a lack of care by the producers, not by the fault of the product itself. The FDA did eventually drop the import ban, but have never granted it the label generally safe. Which is not an unfair thing to do. Certain people are indeed prone to a reaction to pink peppercorns thanks to its family relationships. This tree is related to cashews and poison ivy, so it is likely that anyone that has an allergic reaction against cashews and other tree nuts, or has strong reactions to poison ivy, will also have some sort of reaction to pink peppercorn. Sorry people with food allergies, here's one more thing you can't have. Pink pepper had entered the food trend world on rocky ground immediately when it was pointed out early on that it wasn't quote-unquote true pepper. And then after this toxicity scare... Its popularity never recovered, but you are certain to still find pink peppercorn on grocery store shelves, at least as part of some sort of multicolor peppercorn blend. Personally, I think it's time to go ahead and bring this baby back into the spotlight. I propose a new food trend, foods that come from trees specifically.
It's really not hard to do. Trees already give us so much. But now we know that they also give us a bright, fresh seasoning and delicious, fruity beer. Be sure to check out my Patreon to help support the show and receive hours of additional content between my full unedited interviews with John Perlin and Ethan Strange, as well as my video series Tree Walks with Thomas. Last week I crossed a big item off my tree bucket list by visiting Walden Pond, made famous by the writings of Henry David Thoreau. Subscribers of my Tree Huggers tier are able to watch me follow in his transcendentalist footsteps and learn some history about how wilderness in that area has changed from then to now. Remember that part of every contribution is donated to a sustainable nonprofit organization chosen quarterly by my patrons. All the fun is over at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees. Come join my growing army of tree huggers or start a seven-day free trial to get a taste of the action. Next episode, I'm going to be introducing a new way to look at forests by spotlighting foresters who helped redefine the practice of forest management. It's part of a new series of content I'll be trickling into the mix to help us better understand our historic relationship with forests and how unique individuals helped that relationship evolve. For my first Forester Spotlight on September 5th, I'm diving into the life of none other than Gifford Pinchot, the very first Chief Forester of the U.S. Forest Service. We'll explore some of the important names that helped push his story career along, how he championed the movement of forest conservation, and his complicated relationship with preservationist John Muir. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at BoomerangBrit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees or on Instagram at TreePodcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash MyFavoriteTrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. (laughs) 